This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, 
Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Danny Pritchard. Now, Danny is a former Green Beret and Tier 1 operator and also a member of the Human Performance Project. So we discuss a host of topics from the mentorship in his early childhood, his journey into the military, his friendship with Pat Tillman, physical fitness, mental health, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Danny Pritchard. Enjoy. Well, Danny, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time of your very busy schedule and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. And yes, I do have a busy schedule, but making time for something like this obviously means a lot to me. And I'm also flattered to be on something like this and, and what a great audience you have. Well, we met in person in Dallas just a few weeks ago and had an incredible time, the whole team. So we'll get into the whole Human Performance Project and 7X. But I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in Philadelphia uh, on the outskirts and I grew up in an amazing household. So if you wanted to talk about the quintessential life of mother and father today, married 50 years, um, brother and sister who are two of my best friends, a great neighborhood place where people rarely lock their doors. Uh, still to this day, I'm friends with many of my uh, childhood friends that uh, I've grown up with. And one of the amazing parts of that neighborhood was that it was very um, multicultural and definitely a cool demographic. Uh, heavy Irish Catholic population, but also uh, everything imaginable across the board. So growing up there, I learned a lot about taking care of your neighbor. And I think sometimes it's like the mistaken indoctrination that you don't realize you're getting. Uh, my father's best friends were Tom Tregment and Bill Wynn, who were our two neighbors. And God forbid anything on that street happened where people needed help. Uh, we rushed to one another's side. So it was kind of a cool place to grow up. Uh, I also saw some things in that neighborhood that uh, probably most people didn't see growing up. A little bit of violence once in a while. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it was a great place to grow up. My sister this, to this day is actually um, still in the neighborhood right up the street um, from where we grew up. And my parents uh, are also there. So, uh, What did your mom and dad do as far as profession? Yeah, my mom and dad. Um, so I, I joke and say I grew up poor Irish with a rich family. Um, at poor Irish in the sense that my parents came from very humble backgrounds. My mom was one of 13 kids, 11 daughters and two boys. 
And my grandfather on that side is um, or was a, uh, a, a World War II veteran who actually was on the beaches of Omaha. And he actually <laughs> um, was a lawyer in, in, in Philadelphia after he came back and dealt with a lot of PTSD. And back then, uh, I don't know if they treated it like PTSD. He was more likely handed a bottle of whiskey and told, hey, stop being a, a, you know, a baby and get back at it. Um, but my mom, uh, she was the third oldest. And both her older brother, um, Uncle Chuck, had gone off to Vietnam and her older sister had moved out of the house when my grandfather on her side passed away. So my mom was tasked with becoming uh, a bit of a, a matriarch for the family. And she kind of wears that crown to this day. Uh, I can't say enough about my mom. <laughs> it's kind of funny how, you know, I, I look back and if you want to see somebody that's uh, eternally optimistic in every situation she's ever been in, that's my mother. Um, so when her father passed away from uh, alcoholism, basically, she continued to carry that torch and help to raise the other nine siblings that were in the home. And uh, my dad, similar, but not as big a family. So he grew up uh, poor Irish in Philadelphia as well. And his father passed away when I believe my dad was in sixth grade. Um, his sister, who is older, um, she passed away from a head injury. And then his middle sister actually uh just passed away about four or five years ago, my Aunt Kathy, who was my godmother. But when it comes to people that come from very humble and meager backgrounds, that was my parents. And I think for them, uh, raising children was all about giving us something that they never had. And <laughs> there's a little bit of, of uh, um, dissension between my mother and father. Oftentimes, my mom would go to bat for my brother and I more so than my dad probably would have in the nefarious activities that we got into. But it was... Uh, it was always my mom who convinced my dad to get us out of jail, I guess you would say. And uh, it was uh, it was a really cool home to grow up in. And, and both my parents, uh, I can't give enough credit to. They, uh, You say, what were their careers? My dad had worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer in the printing press after he came back from Vietnam. He was in the Navy and jokes and says he wasn't smart enough or in shape enough to become a pilot. So they made him a uh, an, uh, an aviation guy on a P3 back then. So my dad had um, a bartending gig and my mom a waitressing gig where they would get extra money to pay for things like Little League and stuff that you don't realize cost so much money back then, whether it was a, a school uniform for the little Catholic school they went to in Philadelphia. All that ancillary income went to that. And when you're a small child, you don't realize that People are working so hard to put you in the position they are. But looking back, especially when I got to be in my 20s, I understood how lucky I was. And that's why I say um, that I was, I was poor Irish in a wealthy family. We were wealthy with all the love and care that we had. So um, my parents and, and all my extended family are a huge part of who I am today. So I, I, I shout out to mom and dad like most people. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate in that sense. Beautiful. This is why I love these early story, early family stories, you know, the, the generations. Now, one thing that really has been, I've had my eyes open to is I think prior to probably about a year ago, I had this romanticized vision of what it was like coming home from war as a World War II veteran with ticker tape yeah. parades and, you know, roll up your sleeves and let's make America great. As we move forward, and obviously it's the, the mental health crisis that brought you and I together through Ryan, I realized that 
that's not the case at all. And then some did come, you know, some walked down Manhattan and, you know, got those kind of parades, but then they still went to their apartment, their home, whatever, and had to deal with what they saw and what they did. Right. And I realize now that there is a, I think what we're suffering from now, the root of it, or one of the roots is this multi-generational trauma. And so many of my guests, parents, if they're older or grandparents that were World War II veterans became alcoholics and or, you know, possibly yeah. violence involved as well. So I think that's a, that's another part of this whole current day mental health crisis is, you know, how many generations does it go back? And how can you have the kind of combat that we had for five years in, in the UK um, and then have our veterans come home and just assume everything's going to be fine again? Yeah, that's no, a great point. And it's funny, I actually had a, an amazing opportunity to go over to Normandy for the 75th anniversary. And when I was over there, I hadn't spent much time uh, prior to that thinking about my grandfather, other than the fact that I knew he was a World War II veteran and, and had passed I asked a little bit about his service and my mom said he had been awarded a bronze star and a purple heart and that he suffered from, um, you know, obviously she didn't call it PTSD, but you know, mental uh, problems that all got solved by a bottle of alcohol. And then after I came back from Normandy, uh, I asked my mom if I could see his, um, his military records and then went through it and had a deeper appreciation and realized that, it was part of who I am. When you talk about the moral fabric of, of generation after generation, uh, you look at pictures of my grandfather, we look very much alike. And then to think that he went and served his country, came back. I went and served my country and came back. I've had so many people tell me that there's ways to get help. There's so many things from yoga to art to equine therapy to hunts that are put on um, to the 7X project. And there was none of that for those guys. If much at all, it was go to the VA and they'd give you a script. So I kind of empathize with my grandfather and I look back and think, you know, what could have been if these men who were the greatest generation had been given more mental health care? And there's hardly a, anyone to blame because we didn't know much about mental health back then. And it's just starting to come to the forefront and I think that's what's exciting. As much as we look around and we had 20 years of conflict between Afghanistan and Iraq and all the guys and girls that are now dealing with this, uh, it's exciting to realize that our generation, um, you know, the demographic that I got to go and serve with are looking out for one another in a way that's never been done before. And it's amazing to think of what science brought together with spirituality, brought together with just the tenacity of a generation is going to, is going to, unveil over the next few years. And, and that's what's exciting. So I don't think that it, we should be upset uh, that we're fighting through this. I think we should be excited and optimistic as in look at ways that we can continue to grow and continue to serve. Um, actually, I was at an event just this Monday, uh, Ryan Birdman Parrot and Jamie Metcalf had invited me to the David Metcalf uh, golf memorial. Uh, David's the gentleman that we are going to be doing the 7X project which we'll get into later, but David was a SEAL that unfortunately had taken his own life. And while we were there, um, there was another widow uh, of a SEAL who got up and, and talked about her husband and, and what he dealt with and, and how depression and, and PTSD is silent. You don't tell people because in our little minds, we're all going through it. But what I thought when she said was one of the greatest things, she said, warriors need rest and it's your time to rest. And I was like, wow, like that's, that's the truth, right? Like, 
every guy and girl that has been through 20 years of conflict and is about to get out, it's their time to rest. Let's figure out ways to offer them the, 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 the outlets that are safe, the outlets that involve uh, drugs and alcohol that can help people with mental health and, and live in better lives. Because uh, that to me is the exciting part. And I, like I said, I, I'm flattered and, and honored to be part of what Ryan's doing um, with 7X, which is truly all about how we're going to help veterans. So it's a long way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be on this podcast and my, my upbringing and my background has, has showed me way more at 46 than I thought it would uh, when I was a young man. Beautiful. Now, was the person talking Sarah Wilkinson, Chad's widow? Yeah, I didn't know if I, yeah, it was Sarah. She was amazing. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk to her afterwards. I wanted to give her a big hug and tell her, you know, I'm tearing up in the in the front of the room there thinking about what she's been through, but her ability to communicate what he went through and how we should be moving forward. There was no boo-hoo, woe is me. It's, hey, let's do this. You know, let's figure out how to fix it. Same with Jamie Metcalf. I mean, Jamie is a rock star. Uh, it's, you know, sitting there, you know, in this year two of her event, realizing all the people that she's brought together um, and the wounds are still fresh with her. It's not been years. Uh, it's recent. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty good perspective on, on two women that have picked up the torch and are realizing that it's all of our responsibility uh, to help, as she said, to, to let the warriors rest. Absolutely. Well, just staying on the topic for one more second, you said your dad was a Vietnam vet. Have you guys had discussions on the impact of that conflict on him versus you know what the, the environment that we just discussed now? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I got a couple uncles, my uncle Joey, uh, my uncle Danny, uh, my other uncle Joey. Um, I sound like a, a, a Philly Irish background there, but Joey, <laughs> Joey, uh, Tommy. But, um, you know, I've never really sat with any of them. And, and recently, uh, just last week, one of my best friends from home's father passed away. And it's that kind of Yankee out of your seat moment and says, hey, you need to spend more time with your dad. And we've had great conversations, but my dad grew up uh, without a father. So it's not his fault, but he's not a very open guy and he's not touchy-feely. So um, I just said to my mom last week that I feel like I need to go do a trip with dad. He's been wanting to go down to the World War II Museum in, in New Orleans. And so I was going to take a trip there with him and, and just go over it. You know, sometimes you don't realize how much knowledge your parents have and everything they've been through until you do a trip like that. Um, but yeah, so we, my dad and I have not talked. And like I said, he always makes fun of himself. He was uh, a Navy guy and, and got to go to some cool places. Didn't really go into the uh, jungles of Vietnam back in the day. But uh, my uncles that have, um, I've had quick conversations with them, but it's pretty interesting how quick they are to, again, support me and, and my friends and um, some of the stuff that we do. Brilliant. Well, staying on your childhood then, talk to me about the sports and athletics that you were doing as, as a kid. Yeah, so I I was fortunate to have a little bit of athletic ability. Um, and as a short guy on a basketball court, uh, my talents didn't reach uh, quite what I thought they were going to. So I switched from basketball, which was my favorite sport as a young kid, to lacrosse in high school. Um I played lacrosse at LaSalle College High School in Philadelphia. And if you talk about how it was shaped by um, not only a program, by also an institution and mentors and coaches and teachers back then, 
the coach of the team was a guy by the name of Bill Leahy, who I'll give a massive shout out to. And Coach Leahy at the time was in his early 20s, had asked to come start this program with us at LaSalle and did a phenomenal job. We were the preeminent champs year after year after year after year. And the things that you take from a athletic team and, and going out on the sports courts and, and fields, um, they translate a lot into life. And so for me, having Coach Leahy uh, guide me and, and teach me some of the stuff that I didn't realize at the time I was learning, um, it was pretty, pretty profound. You look back and you realize how lucky you were. There's a saying at LaSalle College High School as you pull onto the campus that says, boys will be boys, but LaSalle boys will be gentlemen. And you kind of scoff at it and laugh as a young man at, you know, 14 to 18, and you're far from a gentleman half the time. But as you grow older, you realize the lessons that were given to you uh, at that institution kind of resonate. And maybe more so in combat than anything, when I was forced with a decision on what was the right thing to do, I feel like I defaulted back to those lessons, those lessons I learned in the neighborhood of empathy, those lessons I learned in high school. So I always joke and, you know, I am very, very lucky to be where I'm at now. The fact of the matter is I didn't get myself here. I, I, you know, it takes a village. And I know without a doubt that there was numerous teachers and, and uh, priests and coaches that grabbed me by the ear and said, you are doing the wrong thing and uh, and helped me get back on asthma. So, yeah, sports was a major part of my um, my youth, and uh, especially in high school, Coach Leahy and Joe Parisi, who was the disciplinarian at the school, spent a lot of time in his office. Uh, most of it had zero malice, just knucklehead stuff. And uh, I think Coach Parisi is also still at the school to this day. And uh, I was very fortunate. I, I, well, it's actually a good segue to you talk about you know, your parents and the sacrifices that they made. Um, at the time, my graduating year, I believe LaSalle College High School in 1994 was $7,000, which doesn't seem like too much these days. But if you go on the economy of scale, back then, a mother and father who already had two kids in college and then me going to LaSalle at seven grand, which is, I think, current day somewhere in the high 20s to $30,000 to send your kids you look back and realize that that sacrifice my parents made, my dad bartending and my mom waitressing and all the stuff they do to get ancillary income, uh, it's lost on you back then. It's just lost on you. But I am uh, truly who I am today because of the sacrifices they made. Now, you said the coach came in, implemented the program, and you were successful pretty soon after that. When mm -hmm. you look back now with the, you know, not only the, the special operations eyes, but also the, the strength conditioning wisdom that you have now, what were some of the things that he did in that school that allowed you guys to excel so quickly? Yeah, it's, it's funny you asked that because Coach Leahy came to me and he said, hey, we need a goalie. And I heard you're crazy enough to jump in a net and let guys whip a rubber ball at you at 50 to 70 miles an hour. And that appealed to my little ego. And I said, yeah, I, I want to be a goalie. And so he said, well, we're going to be doing uh, pre-season conditioning uh, in the gym. And every morning you had to be there at six, which if you understand where my high school was in relation to my home, it was like a half hour drive to get there. So all of a sudden I was getting up at zero five 
and eating a quick bowl of, and don't tell this to Chelsea Burkhart, but a quick bowl of fruity pebbles and, <laughs> and running out the door at a pop tart, which at that time I thought was good nutrition and running out the door and coach would put us through um, the strength and conditioning program preseason that I know again, goes back to that almost inadvertent indoctrination of what it's like to be a good person, both spiritually, physically, and, and, and mentally. Um, I learned that at a very early age. So to this day at 46, I'm still a guy that likes to get up early uh, and then get a, a workout in. So Coach Leahy also uh, let me see that a couple of muscles on my arms would get the attention of the pretty girls in school. So as I started to get little bumps on my chest and bumps on my arms, um, I, I realized that I was getting noticed by the, the pretty girls. So it had a, a dual effect of uh, helping me mentally and, and, and for the team, but also getting recognized by the, the cute girls at the at the schools. It still works at 46, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then career aspirations. Were you thinking of the military in school or was there something else? No, I was never a guy that grew up thinking that I would someday end up in the military. And for me, it was not something that I, again, would ever disregard, but just didn't have that opportunity. There was the first Gulf War, and I was way too young for that. Um, if you remember, that was over, I think, in about 13 hours. Um, fast forward, 9-11 uh, happened, and I remember, like most guys at my age, because I was 25, and so all of a sudden, you hear the cry to help your country, and um, it wasn't until uh, a few years later when a guy that was a friend of mine by the name of Pat Tillman, which everyone knows is the uh, NFL player turned Army Ranger. Uh, Pat was a, a really good friend of my roommate at the time, Zach Walls. And Pat uh, raised his hand, obviously, and, and went off and, and served his country. And that was when I first started thinking about it. And for me, it was uh, not an easy decision, um, probably harder than most people's because – uh, after, uh, Pat was unfortunately killed in 2004, I already had a business that I was running. I had a house here in Scottsdale. And, uh, like I said, at, at 29, I, I felt like I was past that point of my entry being actually, uh, accepted. Um, but luckily I found out that there was a program called the 18 x-ray program and the 18 x-ray program was looking for guys to come in and pipeline directly into the special forces community. So I had a cousin who was in Ranger Battalion and had gotten out um, a few years after the war started. And he told me about it. And I thought that the only people that could be Green Berets had to either look like Sylvester Stallone and Rambo or Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in, uh, in one of his movies. So I was like, oh, I don't fit that bill, but uh, I learned quickly that uh, there was an opportunity for me, and that was, was suddenly appealing to realize I could go in and get to a place that was a little more um, uh, selective on their on their demographic that they brought in, and and that's how I got into the military. So, what profession were you in prior? What was the business? So, I had a concrete and asphalt business here in the city of Scottsdale. A gentleman that I had worked for prior to that at the city of Scottsdale as a project inspector. Um, 
by the name of John Farmelli. He's an old Italian guy from Pittsburgh. And John was like a second father for me out here on the West Coast. John was a Vietnam veteran, came back, used his GI Bill, went to Penn State. Um, after graduating Penn State, moved out here with his wife to Scottsdale, which back in the 70s was a barren desert. Um, and John, for 30 years, helped build out this city to what it is. Um, and so I had known John through coaching some small um, little league football here in town. And when I decided that I was going to um, leave the business, it, it was a quick uh, amount of support from John who came to me and said, Hey, I love it. I, I think it's a great idea. So uh, I, I left the shop and, and, and went back home to Philadelphia and uh, I did the, the, the MEPS from Philadelphia, which was interesting because when I went to the recruiting station and told them that I wanted to go into the 18 X-ray program, the guy at the recruiting station said, Oh, nobody ever makes it. Nobody ever makes it. And I thought to myself, well, how hard is it? And I started getting that idea of Rambo or, or uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in my head and realized that uh, it wasn't going to be that hard. So yeah, I, I lived with my sister and brother-in-law for about nine months. And uh, finally I got to my uh, basic training on September 15th of 2005. I was the old guy and uh, it was pretty interesting to show up. There's a place called 30th AG and anybody that's ever enlisted in the army and been into combat arms has to go through um, 30th AG. And I showed up and I thought I was in a penitentiary. It was a bunch of young kids with shaved heads running around in army shorts and t-shirts. And here I am thinking, oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? I left a house and a job in Scottsdale. I gave all that up to come here. And luckily in the back of my head, uh, I had my cousin who had told me, hey, it's going to be tough at first, like most things. But over time, the caliber of individuals you're with is going to slowly get better and better. The situation is going to get better and better. And, uh, you know, thinking of Pat a lot of the time also helped figuring if he went through it uh, and gave up a, a multimillion dollar contract for uh, uh, the NFL it was a little bit easier for me to give up my job and, and go there. So I like, kind of always had Pat in the back of my brain. Well, not very many people get to hear who he truly was. We heard that he passed away. I don't think it was even really made that public of how he was ultimately killed. And I think that's an important thing as well. But prior to that, talk to me about the Pat Tillman that you knew. Yeah, so I definitely was not his best friend, but my roommate, Zach, uh, and him were best friends from the Cardinals. So to draw it back a little bit to understand how it all developed, my buddy from high school had gone off to Dartmouth up in New Hampshire and played football. I had gone and visited him, and when I was up there, I met Zach, who at the time was the captain of the football team. He was a linebacker and never thought anything about it after I left. Fast forward, I'm back out in Arizona a couple of years later. And I get a call from that buddy who said, hey, Zach just got drafted to the Arizona Cardinals. He doesn't know anybody out there. I know you're still at Arizona State. You know, I'm going to connect you to. And, you know, when he lands, he's like, we'll have somebody that he can, you know, actually use as a, a guide. Uh, so, of course, Zach lands and we met and we kind of joke it. We were pretty kindred souls, hit it off right away. And Zach uh, did make the team. And 
also got a signing bonus at the time, which I think was $50,000. He was getting league minimum at $250,000. We thought we were millionaires a hundred times over. And I knew a lot of people in Scottsdale and Phoenix and Tempe and Zach had what we thought was unlimited supply of money. So we had a really, really good time. Zach and Pat had played against each other in high school. So uh, I believe different counties, but same area in San Jose, California, where they both grew up. And so Zach always tells the story of even back then, Pat was the guy that everybody was like, oh, he's big man on campus, big man on campus. So Zach tells the, the day that he went to the Cardinals practice facility for the first time, hoping that maybe Pat would remember him from their high school days four years prior. And he said, as he's walking up the ramp into the Cardinals facility, if you understand it, it's this concrete uh, ramp that goes right into the big doors. And I'm sure Zach was very nervous walking in, but there at the front door waiting for him was Pat. And Pat was like, Walsy! And they just immediately had that bond and connection. So Zach and Pat, obviously two rookies on the team, had a really good bond. And I got to meet Pat through... Zach. And I was in awe of Pat because for four years, he really was the big man on campus here at Arizona State. If you remember, I believe it was, oh God, I'm going to get my years wrong, but I think it was 96. We went to the Rose Bowl against Ohio State and the whole world watched as uh, Pat and and then quarterback Jake the Snake Plummer uh, lost, unfortunately, to Ohio State. But um, Pat and Zach had an event in town on a Friday night. And uh, I remember meeting Pat before it and kind of being a little bit nervous that this dude was such an amazing uh, athlete and so well revered in our little town of Tempe, Arizona. Um, So then Pat and I kind of became friends through that. And what I tell people about Pat, he was the guy that made you feel like the most important person in the room. And I always would consider myself kind of a nobody back then. But it was early cell phone days. Cell phones were starting to come out. Uh, Pat would call the house looking for Zach uh, because Zach and I were roommates. Um, And I'd pick up the phone and Pat would say, hey, is Zach there? And I'd say, oh, no, he's out doing whatever. I'll let him know you called. But then he'd say, well, what are you up to? And and I'd say, nothing. I was just about to go out for a run. I was about to do whatever. And he would drag you into a conversation and make you feel like you were all of a sudden the center of his world. And it's a very unique talent. It was authentic. It was organic. And I realized, um, again, looking back, that what he taught me was just more about that other people matter and how you make them feel is way more important than uh, how you feel about yourself. And so Pat did a lot of that. Uh, One of my favorite stories of Pat uh, that – uh, some people might know was he and Zach were going up to play the Raiders in Oakland. And at the time, everyone knows Raider Nation was the rowdiest fans in the NFL, short of the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, but they were going up to Oakland and Zach's family and Pat's family had got a bunch of tickets for all their friends and family. So call each group had 40 people sitting together and the Raiders, I believe were, you know, seven and zero on the season and the Cardinals were, you know, three and four. 
they went into Oakland and beat Oakland in Oakland. And I got a call from Zach back here in Scottsdale at the house that we were living at. And he said, go buy as much alcohol as you can. We're going to have a huge party at the house. And so I went out and bought a bunch of alcohol waiting for the guys to get back to Phoenix and the airport's only, you know, 10 minutes from where Zach and I lived. And so I knew people were going to start showing up that evening uh, from the big win up in Oakland. There was a knock at the door and I opened up the door and it was Pat. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe you guys beat Oakland and Oakland. And, you know, we're high-fiving and all excited. And I look over his shoulder. Um, there's a, a Volvo station wagon. It was a cross country. And so here I am looking at this station wagon. I said to Pat, I said, is that your car? And he said, Oh yeah, I just got it. And I said, you just got a Volvo station wagon. He goes, yeah, come here and take a look at it. It's kind of well known that prior to that, Pat had this old beat up little Jeep Cherokee sport that he rode around in, uh, even though he was making good NFL money. And so instead of upgrading to uh, Escalade or Mercedes, he went with what was one of the most practical cars on the road at the time. And that was the Volvo cross country station wagon. So he pulls me out of the house and he's showing me the Volvo station wagon. And at that time, all the guys from the team that were coming to hang out at the house and celebrate the big win against the Raiders started pulling up to the house in their Escalades and, and Mercedes. And I'm thinking to myself, how unique is this guy that of all the vehicles that he could drive, he chooses a Volvo cross-country station wagon. Um, so numerous stories like that with Pat. He was a guy that had always been somebody that kind of scoffed at, at the fame and, and, and fortune. And uh, he was truly, truly a unique individual. A lot of the things that uh, I've done in my life um, stem from getting to know Pat a little bit. Uh, at one point, I was out running and uh, Pat and I had a conversation about doing a marathon. And I said, yeah, I said, I want to do a marathon someday. He said, me too. He did a marathon like a month later. Um, same thing with the triathlon. Everything he said he was going to do, he ended up doing. Uh, he was very much a man of his word. And I took from that that um, that was kind of what drove me when I decided to go into the military, that uh, you got to be a man of your word. And so I had a lot of stuff that I was uncommitted to or didn't follow through on. And after um, Pat was unfortunately killed, uh, I realized that that's it. If you say you're going to do it, do it. Uh, and I'd be remiss not to mention Pat's brother, Kevin, who's not a big fan of uh, any fame, but Kevin and I got to know each other over the years too. And Kevin uh, to this day is honestly one of the most amazing human beings uh, I've ever met. Kevin has uh, a very unique way about him and it was both him and that inspired me. Kev used to run around with me and Zach and Pat here in Scottsdale and Again, the antithesis of all things Scottsdale, if you've ever been here, it's kind of like Beverly Hills in the desert, lots of flash and glamour. And so we would go out and Pat and Kevin were all about no glitz, no glamour. They, you know, they were in flannel shirts and uh, Merrill boots and we'd be walking into some nightclub and you know they, they didn't care at all. So they were very true to who they were. Um, so yeah, Pat and Kevin were definitely the inspiration uh, for me. Um, Kevin doesn't get enough credit. He also gave up uh, a career in the uh, major league baseball. Um, and so they are 
truly two of the greatest Americans, two of the greatest human beings uh, I've ever had a chance to know and, and get to call friends, which I'm honored and flattered to do. Yeah, well, I think it's important that we hear stories about these people because, I mean, there's there's a kind of hero worship element, of course, but it's kind of left at that. It's it's a two-dimensional portrait of who a person was versus, as you just educated us, the humility, the kindness and compassion, and obviously that desire to serve that draws you away from an incredibly lucrative football career to go in and serve in response to 9-11. Now, I had a police officer who's a canine on the other day, and he made a really interesting kind of comment. He all but lost his arm being shot. His canine was killed. Um, and after, you know, he was he was uh, recovering from his wounds, the comment was made, non, non-life-threatening non injuries. And he said, people label you with that. It can be completely life-changing that you've had, but because you didn't die, it was almost downgraded. I feel the same happens with um, green-on-green um, you know, killings basically in in the military, whereas there's an element of shame almost, and it's not discussed. But I think there's a very important takeaway, whether it's in law enforcement, whether it's in um, the military. So, you know, what, whatever you want to, however you want to paint the picture, what actually happened to Pat, and, and how, you know, what what was gleaned from that? Were there any changes made? Because I mean, war is chaos, so there's no way of controlling every single round that this fired. But I think that. Shoving it under the bed is no different than shoving these overdoses and suicides under the carpet and trying to just pretend they didn't happen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that, you know, you bring up uh, the green on green. And, and uh, I will tell you without a doubt that uh, the Tillman family endured some stuff that uh, I can't imagine going through. Kevin in particular, being the face of the family, stepping up and, and fighting for the right answer. Um, it never erodes what Pat and him did. And I think that that is kind of a parallel to what's going on right now with a lot of the guys and girls that are taking their own lives. And we go, well, there's no pride in that. And how dare they, you know, leave behind this mess by, you know, committing suicide. They were combat warriors and now they do this. But the truth is there's so much of what happens on the battlefield that resonates uh, with people. And now you hear of some amazing warrior taking his life. That's that's because it's a combat related injury. And so whether it was um, Pat's unfortunate uh, green on green um, or whether it's uh, somebody you know, like David Metcalf that takes his own life, it's uh, it's from combat. And, and, and to, to base any of the, the, the achievements of what these men and women have done is is absolutely arrogant and ignorant. Um, so, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I will go a little bit into a rabbit hole with the Tillman family. I think sometimes they get uh, mislabeled in the public eye. Um, You know, people think they're like (laughs) anti-American. Kevin's one of the greatest people I've ever met. His family uh, are amazing, amazing people. But what they were looking for, I I believe, is just that their brother, their son, um, be given a chance to tell the truth about the story of what happened. And that's not really what took place in the beginning. And so... Um, and, and to defend the family a little bit, uh, I don't want anybody to ever be confused. They are truly, truly, truly great people. Kevin and his wife now are working with uh, an organization called 50 Strong, and they're helping with military that are transitioning out. Uh, Kevin and I have had conversations about midlife crisis, where all of a sudden you kind of look around and say, you know, now what? 
Um, Kevin is educated and you've got a great network. I'm educated. You're at a great network, but sometimes you kind of look around and say, is this it? Uh, Kevin always jokes and he says his biggest problem is his brother was Pat Tillman. <laughs> How do you fill those shoes? Uh, my problem is I'm luckily have some pretty amazing mentors that are all C-suite executives and, you know, fortune 100 companies. So the two of us joke and say that we have a pretty high bar to which we need to achieve things, but, uh, it's okay. So, yeah. So the, the, to say uh, anything other than Pat was an amazing, uh, individual, the family's amazing. Uh, I think also Pat gets mischaracterized. Uh, I'll speak a little bit about this. I think some people label him as like the ultimate Patriot that would do what they think, uh, fits into their opinion. Um, uh, I think Pat was way more open-minded than many people, um, understood. Uh, he was very good. That's something that I learned from him as best way to say it is he looked at things from multiple angles. He kind of had you reevaluate your own, um, thought process and, and he'd help you change your mind about something. You went, Hmm. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people would be surprised on where he stands on things and uh, I'll, I'll finish on that, but yeah, he's, they were amazing, um, friends to have and, and, and inspire me to do what I did. Uh, no regrets, absolutely zero regrets. Beautiful. Well, firstly, thank you for taking the time to, to tell us who he was, because I mean, he, like I said, he became a very two dimensional figure to the person who didn't know him. And then as you mentioned, also getting hijacked by certain groups as a, you know, kind of poster child. And maybe I should have uh, Kevin on the show as well. And maybe we can tell the story a little bit better. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know if you're going to Kev. Uh, <laughs> he's not a he's not a big public guy. Uh, maybe his wife, Candy, who uh, I I she should also be wearing medals across her chest for all the stuff she's done for our community. She's amazing. Um, but yeah, Kev's, Kev's, Kev's a little bit of a, uh, a quiet guy. Um, cerebral, yes. And uh, again, I don't think people give him enough credit. Uh, he's very well read. And and uh, again, another guy that makes you question your own thought process. But I don't know if you're getting him on the show. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe you'll listen to this one and maybe we'll get him to trust yeah. me. Yeah. All right. Um, well, they're moving on. So you've painted obviously now the picture of your why. As you go through this special forces selection program, it's obviously known as a high attrition rate. Now, this wasn't your burning desire as you were, you know, navigating the, the, um, the asphalt and um, concrete world. Now right. you find yourself here. So talk to me about physically and mentally what allowed you to be successful when so many people around you were ringing the bell. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to, you know, it takes a village. When I decided to join um, my cousin Joey, who was a ranger, um, helped me out with a ton of stuff. Uh, I have another cousin who wasn't even in the military, uh, David uh, Beccaria, um, and David was an avid um, triathlete, had done Ironmans and uh, ultras and everything on the spectrum for the endurance uh, ecosystem was David's David's wheel well. So I went to him. I said, hey, I got to get in great shape. And here's what I'm thinking about doing. Uh, I'm going to run a marathon. And I ran a marathon. Um, next thing you know, I said, hey, I want to do a, a triathlon. And he helped me train for a triathlon. So here I was kind of following the playbook of Pat which I thought would be a great way to prepare myself for the military and the endeavor that lied ahead. Uh, I went and uh, spent more time uh, journaling and, 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 and spending time alone to which I think I was not really um, focused on. So when you're alone, you can get into a, a way different space. And I learned that 
um, from running and from journaling and all that stuff that I did back then that I still do to this day. But I got to um, Fort Bragg after basic training and fell in with a group of guys that were part of the 18 Rex A program. And it's funny, we on a thread right now, you know, text thread, finding old pictures of us. Um, how back then, you, you know, you thought uh, you're going to live forever, but being surrounded with a bunch of guys that were also driven to accomplish what we had set out to do uh, made it easier. So when I got to Fort Bragg, um, Dustin Roberts, Brian Sudler, uh, Matt Williams, so many guys that uh, were in my Q course class, or which is the qualification course, um, we all kind of leaned on each other. We would party like rock stars, but also really get after it when it came to the mental and physical preparedness uh, for what it took to become uh, Green Berets at the time. So once you graduate, a question that I'd like to put anyone who's seen combat, and the reason behind this question is the average civilian, especially here in the US, gets a very polarizing view of war through their media. Either kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all a bunch of baby killers. So I think it's important that we hear the voices from the front line. So the first part is, was there a moment where you found yourself, you know, wherever you were deployed, and you realized despite the politics that may have sent you there, you saw that there were horrible people in the world that needed to be taken care of? Yes and no, yes. Um, you know, there's a, a great poem by a guy, um, Max Irma, it's called Deserata, and it opens up, and the first line is, go placidly uh, amongst the noise and haste and remember what peace there is in silence. And I had been given this poem when I was 18 by a buddy of mine, and I think that is what combat is. You know, you're going into this chaos. And for me, uh, you, know, you always hear Americans, we are the masters of chaos. Uh, it's try to understand that when you're there, things slow down a little bit. It's kind of like a, a boxer in a, in a heavyweight match. And he tells you that everything is in slow motion. And it's almost hard to comprehend when you're in a firefight that you're moving slowly and, and effectively and efficiently. Um, so that was something that as a Green Beret, I had the men around me that I fed off of, right? So if you're in a situation where everybody's level-headed, cool, calm, and collected, you're going to feed off of that. So much like the guys that I had to rely on through the Q course that was where I became a Green Beret, the proving grounds um, to become a Green Beret. Once I got to my team, my ODA, um, I had a team sergeant by the name of Jay Pope. And uh, Jay was a seasoned guy that had numerous combat rotations, uh, team leader, uh, Sean Harkins, um, Sean and, and Jay were the examples that I got to follow. And I had these guys that taught me everything, um, Quinn and Rob and, and, uh, all these guys that had been on multiple rotations and been to combat before took me under my wing or took me under their wing. And so for me, when I got there, you kind of cue off of the people around you. Uh, I will say this, and you know, a lot of times in the moment, uh, we make decisions. And I know that in the moment, it was 100%, without a doubt, the right decision. But as you get older and you look back and you reflect, that's where you start to question whether or not what you did was exactly the right decision. Um, you know, you're in Afghanistan. There's men that you would 
find that would have AKs in their property and, and they'd have uh, IED making equipment. IED is short for improvised explosive device, but they'd, they'd have this equipment and you would automatically assume that they were bad guys. Well, as I get older, a lot of me starts to wonder, were they bad guys or were they people that the Taliban showed up and said, either you help fight the Americans and build IEDs or we're going to kill everyone in your family and take away your land. So I think that's part of the progression, or, or let me say better, that the evolution uh, of my own opinion is that as I get older, I reflect back to wonder if everything we did then was exactly the right. Uh, I, I don't question it. I have no regrets. But uh, in the moment, what we did based off of the commander's intent and the men that I had around me was 100% the right thing to do. Um, but as you get older, it's just obviously natural progression and the evolution of the mind. You go, hmm, you know, were those guys just dirt farmers that were literally going to be killed if they didn't grab an AK and start shooting out of their compounds at us? Um, you know, so that to me, when you ask whether or not we did the right thing and seeing pure evil, oh, I've seen pure evil. You know, you, you catch some of these guys um, where we'd roll into a compound and their eyes are black with evil. And you kind of have a spidey sense that tells you these are the bad guys. But sure. I mean, I had times when I questioned uh, whether or not, you know, those guys that were in the compound may have just been caught up. I've been a guy who's been uh, at the wrong place at the wrong time, whether it was high school or college. But, um, yeah, I mean, when it goes back to, you know, the, the situations we were in, uh, very, very hairy situations. There was firefights that we got into. Um that I was thinking to myself, oh my God, we're definitely outnumbered and outmanned. Uh, I got hurt in 2009 in a situation. Um, and you kind of look around and feed off of the guys that are there. So sure, you have a, a second where you look and think, um, are, are, <laughs> are we about to get uh, you know, our, our ass whooped? And uh, you just see the confidence of the guys that you're with and, and know that no, we're, we're, we're here. We're doing the right thing. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, when I talk about the dirt farmers, maybe being in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, you know, we would go to situations in towns and villages throughout Afghanistan where the Taliban had done exactly what I said. They had shut off their irrigation systems and were not allowing water to flow down so that these people could grow their crops. And so they were not uh, allowing people to prosper. So we would go in and which was great about being a green beret, you got to wear multiple hats. So we'd eliminate the threat, get rid of the bad guys. And then oftentimes we'd put on a different hat and stay and go into a little bit of a, a civil affairs um, situation where we'd help build back up the schools and we'd get the wells running and the irrigation system operable. So for me, that's what made being a green beret so special it wasn't just that we got to go in and, and, you know, eliminate the threat, but that we got to stay and, and work with the kids and, and put a face to what we felt was the right thing to do. Um, Afghanistan is also a place that is living in biblical times, right? I mean, you're over there and you see a family of five on a donkey and the dad's got a cell phone. It's such a surreal place, but also in the same breath, you know, here we are, American freedom fighters coming into this village that has been oppressed by the, the, the Taliban and we're going to free everybody and give them back everything that they had. And meanwhile, 
They don't even know that there's a government. They don't even know that they live on a planet. They don't even care. They want to do exactly what most people have as the basal tenets of, of survival, which is they want to raise their children. They want to worship their own God and they want to live and prosper. So here we are, you know, like, hey, we're Americans. We just got rid of the Taliban and they don't really have any value on that. Um, you know, I had a really cool experience teaching some of the kids that worked at our camp. And one time when me and uh, Pat McCullough, who's a, a dear buddy of mine from the team, uh, we set up a little school in the back of the compound and uh, not to brag on my family, but I'll brag on my family. Me, uh, I reached out to my mom and sister and I said, hey, me and another buddy here want to teach these kids and we need shoes. We need school equipment and uh, I need as fast as you can get it. So being that my mom was one of 13 in a big family, she reached out to the network of Irish gypsies and all of a sudden, uh, one of our resupply birds, uh, they came out to the fire base that I was at. And as the senior Charlie on the team, I would go out and get the mail and they come off in these big giant bags. They're like large uh, lawn bags full of stuff. And let's say there was eight bags and the guy's like, who's Pritchard? I said, I'm Pritchard. And he said, you know, seven of these bags are for you. I said, huh? And inside of those bags was shoes. It was pens and paper. It was all the school equipment you could possibly imagine. And so, and candy and, and tons of candy from <laughs> my mom and sister. So here are me and, and Pat then helped put this school together in the back. And uh, I had measured all the feet for the kids. And it was just crazy to think that these children are running around in a place that they're not educated. Um, they're not valued. And so uh, that was one of the most amazing things that I dealt with in my career was an opportunity to show these kids that there is a big world out there um, and, and that they can be part of it. I don't know if they want to be part of it, because sometimes <laughs> as an American, we now are dealing with anxiety, depression and all the stuff that comes with social media and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But uh, at the time when I was there, it was really a, a wonderful experience. You know, I, I could tell you days and days of of being in firefights and they sound a lot like every other green beret or seal or ranger or, or combat arms guy that has been through the same, uh, what was special about what we did. Uh, and, and I'm probably the most proud of is, is that aspect of it. Um, staying and helping part of the communities uh, rebuild what they had working with the kids, uh, building relationships with the Afghans. Uh, to this day, I have multiple uh, Afghan friends that fortunate enough to have made it back to the U S uh, Ghul Shabar. <laughs> Ghul's one of our interpreters. He's down in Tampa. And uh, I talk to Ghul all the time. So, yeah, a lot of what you said in the beginning about, you know, eliminating the threat and how combat is, uh, to sum it up, it, you know, it, it goes into slow motion. You're looking around to your left and right. You're surrounded by the most amazing men and women this country will probably never know of. I was humble to go to work every day. And here I was. Uh, after that, having the opportunity to do the altruistic stuff that we as Green Berets did, which was different and made me proud of of uh, who I was. Uh, and actually, our our mantra for the Green Berets is de oppressa liber, which is to free the oppressed. And I think that says a lot about who we were um, and says a lot about America. Right. I mean, no country out there other than us. Uh, shows up quicker whenever there's a natural disaster or whatever the case may be. We're the first ones to put our hand out. And as soon as we put our hands out, they might bite the hand that feeds them. What do we do? Put out our other hand. Um, I think that kind of sums up why I love 
um, this country and, and why I loved being a Green Beret. Well, thank you, because you first you answer both sides, the other side with their moments of kindness and compassion. And obviously, you just told a couple of stories of that. But I think this is exactly what I'm talking about. Firstly, the weight of what we ask our men and women to do for this country. And, you know, I've had, uh, for example, Ishmael Bey, who was a boy soldier in Sierra Leone. If you'd come across him at that very moment, he would have been firing his AK back at you. The backstory of Ishmael was his family were murdered. And he was captured by the army, the Sierra Leone guerrillas, um, and given two choices. You can fight for us or we'll execute you right now. And then they were doped up on drugs and, and right. you know, made to go into villages yeah. and commit atrocities. So that backstory, understanding that not everyone with a, with a gun is a bad guy or a bad girl, you know, is an important thing. And uh, I think it was Staz and Louis that came on from Through Dark had a similar thing. They had this understanding that, look, a lot of these people are are thinking they're fighting the oppressor the same way as we are, you know? So these are the yeah. kind of middle-of-the-road conversations that you don't hear in a lot of these news reports. And the kindness and compassion that I hear over and over and over again, whether it's towards fellow soldiers or the people of the country that you're trying to protect or the animals of the country you're trying to protect, we just do not hear that on CNN or Fox or any of our, you know, sensationalist media. So it's so important that, that we hear them from people like you. So thank you. Yeah. No, and again, it, it, I don't think it's always a binary choice, right? And you kind of hit it right there. Um, there's a lot of evil that exists that was forced evil. Um, but that also being said, there is definitely some people out there that are truly, truly evil, which is why we need good men and women and, uh, to, to stand on the, on the fringes and, and do the things that we do. And uh, I'm very proud of that. So again, you've passed selection. You're now a Green Bray, which is, a, again, a, an organization that I really love because that communication element, that diplomacy factor, you know, makes very, very interesting gets. But I think they're, they're naturally great leaders because, you know, you're not out there just, as you said, John Ramboing everywhere. You're, you're, you're trying to, to not only train up, a, train up a militia, but also mitigate issues and, and protect a community. What made you decide to level up yet again and test for the unit? Uh, it was kind of uh, two things. One, I actually uh, was going to be sent to the battalion. So I was in 3rd Special Forces Group. They had three battalions at the time. And there was the talk of standing up a 4th Battalion, which meant I would have had to leave Jay and, and, and Sean and the guys that I worked with. And I thought, huh, I don't know if I want to do that. And then um, I didn't really know anything about the unit. It was just put in front of me through an email that said I'd been asked to attend a briefing and so I went and uh, I got lucky and fortunate to um, get up there. Uh, I didn't make it through selection the first time. Um, but when I got done, there was a uh, commander, uh, his name I'll leave out of it, but uh, he said, what do you think got you uh, and why you weren't successful? And I said, well, I'm not that tall. So climbing up these mountains of West Virginia was a, a rather uh, long task for me. So. Uh, he stood up and he was about as tall as me and he said, I made it. Oh, well, there goes my <laughs> argument. Um, but yeah, so it was, it was interesting. So then they said, uh, we're not inviting anybody back for a second go around, but only in a few cases. So they actually said, we'd like to have you come back. And I, I went to a deployment um, in between that and then went back to selection again. And again, got blessed and fortunate to have made it through the second time. And uh, there I was. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting 
selection process. It's a very interesting uh, place to go. Um, it's kind of hard to explain to people without saying too much how wonderful the men uh, and women are and, and, and the situation that you're put into. I go back to what I said earlier. Uh, I, I got to work with the greatest men and women this country will never know in a time when we all want Instagram fame and, and immediately think that our 15 minutes of fame is the most important thing. Um, the guys and girls uh, from both uh, the special forces community and then obviously being at the unit, um, humbling, humbling experience. And, uh, you know, obviously some of my best friends to this day are, are still there. And, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. We're in a very interesting time. I think we're at the precipice of learning what will be our next conflict. Americans have a short term memory. <laughs> and so we're quick to forget how bad things were 20 years ago. Uh, I'm definitely not. Uh, kind of predicting that something bad will happen. But um, if you if you want peace, prepare for war. And I think that's one of the things that we got to keep mindful of, uh, especially over the next 10, 20 years and, and, and stand guard for the next generation. Uh, I worry a little bit about some of the guys that are younger and want to get out. Uh, I was just home and a couple of the guys that uh, hadn't hit 20 years yet were talking about getting out. And I thought to myself, hey, man, you know, there's uh, a lot of fellas that pre 9-11, we're having that same conversation. And then the whole world got flipped upside down. And luckily we had well-trained and well-prepared men and women at the time to do exactly what needed to be done uh, in the early 2000s. Um, so to any guy or girl out there that's questioning whether or not it's worth staying in, uh, I, I would argue that it's definitely a time when we need to be prepared for the unknown. I've had some interesting conversations with people about the pool of potential candidates for military police fire shrinking because of the, the, the health crisis we have, the obesity epidemic and, you know, the lack of, uh, uh, emphasis put on PE and sports in a lot of schools now, the poor nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. What is your view? I mean, you're obviously kind of at the pinnacle in, in the army. Um, uh, have you had any perspective of the incoming, you know, 18 year olds and, and what that looks like? Cause I know in police and fire, it seems like a lot of agencies are struggling. And that's not just for the ability. Obviously it's, it's the working conditions and some other things too. But have you got any perspective from your end? Yeah, I love this one because actually at the end of my time at Fort Bragg, I got the very, very uh, fortuitous opportunity to go down to the University of South Carolina and teach our OTC. And when I was there, it was at a time when everybody was saying the millennials are not going to do anything to protect our country. And these kids are lazy and on and on and on and on. Um, and for two years, I worked with some of the greatest kids uh, I could have ever imagined Uh we are as a species, as a country, we're just tenacious. And so this idea that we're getting let down because these kids aren't passing the, the ASVAP and you're, nobody's ready to go be a firefighter or a cop. Sure, we're, we're in unprecedented times. But I'll use an example of a, a young man. Um, it's uh, So Liam Flaherty is a, a buddy of mine who's a, a Rescue 2 guy. That's um, a firefighter up in New York. I could talk for hours about Liam, but his nephew uh, just became a SEAL. And so when I met him at the 9-11 20th anniversary last year, this kid is on a different level. It was like if you could get a little bit of uh, 
Rambo, a little bit of Pat Tillman, a little bit of all the best of the best and give yourself the perfect recipe. Um, this kid was amazing. And so to me, this idea that we're failing as a nation, I think it's ridiculous. I think people are just happy to sell that on the news. I think that, you know, when I talk about earlier with the natural disasters and the Americans are first ones to show up anywhere around the globe here in the U S what's the first thing that happens when there's a natural disaster? What's the first thing that comes out? It's an American flag, right? So whether it's a tornado, whether it's a hurricane or an earthquake, one of the first things you see on that big abandoned building that's burning and, and, and going to rubble is an American flag because we come together. So going back to the idea that we need to be prepared, sure, we'll probably take another black eye over the next few decades and that'll cause us all to come together and remember why we are um, such a wonderful nation of, of, of immigrants. And uh, I, I think that there's a lot of young men and women, probably like me, that didn't move into the world of service until called upon, right? So I can tell you without a doubt, uh, prior to Pat's uh, getting killed in Afghanistan, I wasn't a guy that said, hey, I'm going to go become part of the special operations community. I was a knucklehead who lived in Scottsdale and was partying and, and drinking and doing a lot of uh, things that were very much about the vertical pronoun uh, of I. And uh, that was it. And so then all of a sudden you hear that and you go, wait a second, I'm in a situation where I can serve. So I think it's a lot like having a, a clock on a, on, a, on a game, right? So a lot of times the best players don't show up to the last minute. Um, I think that's a lot of what we're dealing with right now. So, so I would tell all the people out there that say that this country is going to shit, that they need to reevaluate their own opinion. Uh, this country is amazing. Um, I, I'm so proud to be part of it. Uh, I think sometimes forget we're – uh, very, very much in the genesis of our existence. I mean, democracy was given to us by the Greeks, and here we are now trying to figure it out again. Uh, I, I think that's what makes us great is the fact that we have so many people from so many different backgrounds, and those young men and women will hear that call uh, when needed. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd say boo-hoo to anybody that tells you we're not prepared. It takes the last few minutes on the clock and the best players come off the bench, um, myself included. And many of the guys that I went through the Q course with, you know, were in their mid-20s, you know, pushing 30 and all of a sudden said, we need to get together for this and and, and, and get off the bench. So I, I think that will probably be the same situation, God forbid. Um, we have another unfortunate incident as a as a country. Absolutely. Well, I got to say that like, my son, he put himself in the cross country and track team. He's also in the JROTC yeah. um, course, which, which I think are both incredible programs. So I think what I see is there is definitely a health crisis, but, um, you know, there are a huge amount of people. And I've had people say as well that a lot of candidates are more prepared because of things like CrossFit and some of these other movements that have happened yeah. the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So, but I think it, there's definitely also a conversation on improving our health of our nation as well, parallel to, you know, the, the readiness side. Yeah. yeah no, I know. And it, 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 you know, the news outlets want you to believe that. Right. And uh, you know, uh, my buddy Sean has a great line. He said, if you're sitting around watching Fox news, CNN, or any of these major news outlets, they're basically just getting paid to make bored people angry, uh, exacting change and doing something outside of yourself doesn't require you sitting in front of a TV 
watching them feed you some sort of prescribed ethics and then turn around and hitting a keyboard. Change is hard. Change means that you got to get off the bench. You got to get in the game and you got to get involved. And that's why when Ryan asked me to be part of the 7X program, it's because it is change, right? I mean, this is something that is a Herculean task that we're going to take on. Ryan himself has this amazing ability to bring people together and to look at whatever's going on at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or whatever's going on on both coasts and try and figure out how that's going to affect us is, is ridiculous. You want to exact change, go into your local community, figure out how to be part of a sports team, which I said changed my life, or part of a young youth band camp or part of an art program for the kids. Know who your county commissioner is. Know who your local city council are because that's what's going to affect you and the people around you. Um, for me, I think people get so caught up in this idea that if they watch the news and then strike a quick tweet, they're exacting change. Um, I was just watching uh, a newscast when I was home with my parents, and they talked about crime in the city of Philadelphia, which if you're from Philadelphia, we're known for crime. We, we've kind of perfected it up there. But the guy got done. He said, you know what? Go to Twitter and give us your opinion. Um, why? Like, who cares about your opinion? He should have said is get off your ass and go out into the communities and find some young woman or child or, or man that, that needs some help and exact change. Right. Because that's the hard part. It's cowardly and easy to jump on a keyboard and say, well, I think the crime in Philadelphia is at the highest has ever been our murder rate and we should change the politicians. Well, OK, go do it. Go do it. You know, uh, opinions everybody are entitled to, but it doesn't mean they're right. So I, I think exacting change. Um, executing on an idea is way, way more effective than anything we're capable of uh, with a, a, a strikes on a, on a keyboard. Um, and collectively, that's what I think we need to do. Absolutely. Well, again, it goes back to mentorship. And you mentioned about it takes a village in your, you know, your upbringing. I see that yeah. completely. The the man in this case that run the JROTC program, the the man and the woman that run the cross country and track program in my son's school, those are mentors that are doing things that I can't. I'm not in that program. I'm I'm a, a parent, and that's a very important role. And I mentor other people's kids at different times. But that's exactly it. Take your take your hands off the phone or the keyboard. And put your head up and be like, all right, what is my skill set? What can I add that is of value to my community outside my front door? If we all did that, we would raise this entire nation up. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I tell people all the time, like, if you will first and foremost agree with me that as human beings, as homo sapiens, we are here to improve the lives of those less fortunate. The manner in which we achieve that, I'll debate with you all day, right? And we're so polarized. You got to be on left or right. And again, I'm not a guy that has prescribed ethics. I will tell you without a doubt that if you come to me and say, hey, we need an exact change, and then we can figure out a way to achieve that, the, the mannerisms, uh, I'm sorry, the manner in which we achieve that is, is up for debate. But just agree with me first and foremost that I, uh, Dan Pritchard at 46, am here today because of many men and women that did exactly that and, and realized that you know, they were helping someone less fortunate um, and got me to where I'm at right now. So that old saying, you know, you pay it forward. It is probably the simplest thing to do. Um, that all being said, you know, with the veteran community right now and across the entire country and, and the, the world right now, um, you know, the, the depression and, and the anxiety and all that stuff, it's hard when you're in it to see out of it. Right. I mean, there's a lot of people that, um, don't know how to figure out what's next. And so to me, 
here we are uh, at a very unique time to offer those opportunities for change. And so it goes back to what I said, get off your butt and help people out and, and pick up the phone and call somebody. And, and, you know, Ryan talks about all the time. If you're wondering if you have some friends, you know, reach out to people you haven't talked to and, and, and that helps you, um, you know, not a text, not a, 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 an email, personalize it. Uh, I'm a big fan of having conversations. I think if you get the right people in the room, it erodes a lot of uh, stereotypes and and predisposed ideas. So, uh, yeah, I think it's just about engaging with people. Uh, I know for a fact that I'm a uh, I'm a pack animal. I often loved being on the helicopter with the boys way more than the idea of being alone working in a situation. Uh, I like to. That's my energy. Um, so, yeah, I, I think getting out there and, and, and helping people is a huge part of uh, what we need to do for one another in our generation. 100%. Well, I want to get to the Human Performance Project in just a moment. But before we do, it's always an important part of anyone who's, who's served their, their story. What made you decide to transition out and how was that transition out for you? For some of our people in uniform, you know, they there's almost an identity crisis. You've identified as the soldier, the firefighter, and, and sometimes that identity becomes consuming and then they kind of find themselves lost. Other people successfully transition out to another tribe and, and it's a lot less uh, traumatic. So what was your journey like yourself? Yeah, so uh, like you said, I, I went to the unit. I was a heavy breacher over there. I, I, at the time that I was a heavy breacher, I got to meet uh, a man that you've had on before. And I always say uh, with a high level of certitude, he is my mentor, uh, Alex Racy. So I was working for Alex and uh, I went and deployed and I had a tactical mistake to which um, it was the, uh, I was given two options. I, they said, hey, you could stay here and sit at a desk or uh, you can leave and go back um, to the Green Berets. And I was already at the time 40 years old and the writing was on the wall. Uh, I had a mentor at the time by the name of General Huttmacher, uh, who's actually the president and CEO of the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. But at the time, he was the USASOC uh, deputy commander. And so him and I had a conversation and he said, hey, you know, you're in a situation where life's given you some options. And I think the option for you is to figure out what's next and I'll help support that, whatever it is. And so that was when I started thinking about grad school. Uh, I knew I wanted an MBA and I didn't really uh, know where to start. And so General Huttmacher was very, very pivotal in, in getting me uh, in front of the right people and starting to figure out what would be the next steps. Uh, this was back in 2013 or 14. Uh, and back then, there wasn't a lot of emphasis for guys to go get graduate degrees and move on and transition. There has been a huge push in the past eight, 10 years to realize that that is the next fight, right? That is the next ridgeline. Mental health um, is sacrificed if you don't have a good career to follow into so uh <laughs> task condition and standard and and a mission and purpose and all the stuff that we had during our military career is gone the day you take off the uniform so for me i figured if i went and got a education and got smarter i would be able to uh be successful and i looked at different MBA programs 
The University of South Carolina had the number one international MBA program in the country. And so that appealed to me. I thought, well, I've been doing international business. Uh, you stand in the mountains of Afghanistan working with warlords and dealing in guns and trucks and men. And uh, that's that's international business. Um, you know, we'd be in embassies and you'd be wearing a suit and you'd be working with the defense attache, the chief of station, the ambassador and doing, you know, PSD and, and, and situations that um, were very, very high profile. Uh, that to me is international business. So I figured if I could dovetail something with my military career in the way of an education to highlight that, I'd be set up for success. So the University of South Carolina uh, became my objective. And I got down there, taught ROTC, um, and got accepted to the IMBA program with the help of some mentors, uh, a guy by the name of Roger Nanny, uh, and a guy by the name of David Seaton, a guy by the name of Tom Mulliken just all rallied around me uh, to help get me into this top rated program. I didn't really have the academic resume based off of the fact that Arizona state was quite a, a good time back in the nineties. So my grades didn't equate to what would normally be um, an acceptable candidate, but my military career was what shone bright and got me in there. So when I got to the program, uh, when you talk about transition, it was very difficult because here I was at 42 now in a classroom with a bunch of, I say kids, but they were kids, 25 to 30, the typical demographic for an MBA that had all been working at Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or Coca-Cola or wherever and had decided to progress their career. And here comes this gray bearded, veiny old guy that is in the front of the classroom with a pencil and a copy book while these guys are all behind me on their laptops and their phones and they're, they're, they, they're dating and tweeting while doing class. I was like, oh, my Lord, kind of like when I got to 30th AG and basic training, I said I've made a huge mistake. Um, so I was two weeks into the program and another man that I consider one of my best friends, mentors, uh, Sean Moriarty, which I could talk about Sean for hours as well. Sean was a guy that I got introduced to through the Pat Tillman Foundation. Sean uh, had been the CEO of Ticketmaster and was the president of the board for the Pat Tillman Foundation when we first met in 2013. And when uh, we met, Sean said, oh, I, I went to the University of South Carolina. If you're ever going to need anything, let me know. Uh, I'm a guy who likes to call in favors. So I, I called in that favor and had Sean do a couple of uh, talks at the university. but. Two weeks into the program, here I was walking in and I was half in tears thinking to myself, oh, my God, what have I done? And I was going into it was like financial. Uh, I'm sorry, international finance. The professor was this guy, Dr. Kwok, who's the number one international finance professor in the world. All these kids were way smarter than me. And I was about to have a, a breakdown and my phone rings and it's Sean and the universe has a weird way of telling you just as you're about to quit to hang in there. And so Sean goes, Hey kid, what's going on? And I said, man, I'm having a hard time. I said, I'm in this classroom. I, I feel like I'm overwhelmed by the, the, the amount of academics. I, I can't relate to any of these kids. I'm an old guy in the front with a notebook and a pencil. Like what the hell have I done? And Sean said, do you think that, a CEO of a publicly traded company, I haven't had doubt 
creep into my mind. You don't think I've gone through exactly what you're going through? He said, go back to the 15-year-old version of yourself. Do you think you'd be here? Do you, could you tell the 15-year-old version of yourself that you'd have had such an amazing military career and now sitting in a classroom at the number one international MBA program? And it kind of put it into perspective for me. And I realized, wow, like, as much as I think that I'm not capable, I, I am capable. And I, I kind of flipped the switch right there. And he said, what are you great at? And, you know, one of the things that Green Berets are great at is force multiplying. And so I, I realized I didn't have the quantitative skills. Uh, I, I wasn't a great accounting or, or finance guy and data analytics and all this stuff that seemed like a, a foreign language to me. Uh, I was not good at. But what I realized I was good at was bringing people together. And that was my skill set that I started to rely on. And I, that day, there was a kid by the name of Daniel McCann, who I realized was uh, an undergrad. He had his undergrad from Clemson in uh, finance and accounting, dual, dual major. And I went over to him and he'll tell the story a little bit differently because he was scared to death because here's this veiny old guy with a gray beard leaning in on him. And I said, hey, man, I can tell you're really good at finance and accounting. I don't know what I'm doing. I need your help. Uh, do you think you could help me out? And he's like, yeah, man, I I'm happy to help you out. Uh, a couple of years later, he told me he was just scared to death that if I didn't help him out like the bully, he was going <laughs> to get his ass kicked. <laughs> end up in a locker room. We ended up yeah, <laughs> and we became best of friends. And then I started to utilize that skill. Um, there's another kid, Soren Friedi, who ended up becoming my roommate, was from Germany. And Soren was also one of the – he actually graduated uh, the, uh, the class with uh, honors. And so Soren, me, him, everyone in that class, uh, I, I relied on him. So I knew that – my skill set was good. I could bring people together. I was great at public speaking. And so I helped them with the work. And a lot of these young guys and girls didn't want to get up and do the, the presentation. So I would say, everybody come to my house. I have a home that I owned on campus. And I would make burgers and hot dogs and drink beers. And we'd all do our work together. And then I would help a little bit, but mostly do all the briefings. And so I realized where I was good. And that doubt started to erode quickly because of the, again, looking around like I did in combat at the people that I had surrounded myself with that were some of the smartest people uh, you can imagine helped out exponentially. Um, and that was to me how I got through two years of, of school, uh, relying on other people to kind of use each other's skill sets, just like I had when I was a Green Beret and, and spent my time in the military. I think it was Alex Racy when we were in Dallas that said to me, James, you would be amazed how much, um, how strong the imposter syndrome is within the men of the unit itself. So I think that's such a, a kind of misunderstood thing that every single human has that going through them, that self-doubt. And, um, you know, to, to think that, as you said, the John Rambo Terminator, that's what I have. Yeah. I've talked about so often is one of the, the things that's contributed to, I think, a lot of the suicide, this facade of masculinity where you know a man is yin and yang you know is is strong when he needs to be and then is kind and compassionate when he needs to be and we lose that and it becomes just you know this two-dimensional robocop version but when you understand that every one of us at times is going to struggle mentally every one of us at times is going to feel what the fuck am i doing here you know i'm i'm not as good as these people it's so important for us to hear stories like you just said because there you are the absolute tip of the spear in the army being in a college campus and shitting yourself. So, shooting you know, myself. Yeah.
So if I could tell the 20 year old version of myself, one thing it's you belong and everything you belong here. And I realized that recently with an experience I I'll, I'll tell you about in a second, but you know, I grew up caddying and working at my grandfather's golf course. And it wasn't that my grandfather was a member. He was the manager. And uh, I was around some of the wealthiest men in Philadelphia. Uh, the place is called Squires. It's an all men's golf club. The most powerful, richest men in Philadelphia all were members that I would caddy for. And part of my development was learning to be around these men, but I always felt inadequate, right? So you got guys pulling up in a Rolls Royce, and my mom's dropping me off in a beat-up Honda Accord on the backside of the property. You just didn't feel like you belong. And then when I got to high school, which I told you was a private Catholic uh, high school in Philadelphia, some of the kids that I went to school with, their parents were members at this country club. And I was like, whoa, like you are the rich guy. So here I was in class with these guys. And back then, I still felt like I didn't belong. And, and you know, even then, you go to drugs and alcohol as a young kid to fit in and you know, the stuff that you use to make yourself comfortable in this situation. But what I realized now is back then, you know, those kids, they were born on third base. I, I had to work to get to third base. And, and so having parents that taught me what they had taught me, I am way more proud of who I am today than I ever was. And so for me, when I could tell that 20 year old version, like I said, simply it's, it's you belong, it's insecurities. And so your insecurities bleed through and you're thinking to yourself, you know, like I, I, I don't belong in this room with all these accomplished wealthy individuals. Uh, most of the accomplished and wealthy individuals that I've talked about today, the men that have been so wonderfully kind to me and gotten to me where I'm at. Um, one of which I didn't mention is a guy named Mike Humphrey, who we always talk about, uh, our crowd, our, our group, uh, whether it's General Huttmacher or Mike um, or Roger or David or Sean, all these men that have gotten to the paragon of their own chosen profession, military or, or in the civilian world. Uh, Roger was the vice chairman of Deloitte, uh, the largest accounting and consulting firm in the world. He comes from nothing in Monk's Corner, South Carolina. So the best people you get to meet, and, and I say this, and this is my opinion, uh, usually work to get there, right? So it's 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 kind of interesting that most of them, I'm sure, have had that self-doubt. Like Sean said, he said, you, you really think the CEO of a publicly traded company that I am, I haven't had moments of doubt and questioned whether or not I belong here, that imposter syndrome, right? So I, I think uh, Alex is probably exactly uh, right. A lot of us that think uh, we don't belong, and the truth is we all belong. There's too many people that say, oh, I'm not perfect. Now, I used to say that all the time. We're all perfect. We're all perfect in our own way. We're all humanly perfect. And give yourself some grace. Give yourself a little bit of credit. Uh, going back to being 15 and being here, I'm not an imposter. I'm a guy that's worked. I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, and those mistakes have given me a, 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 an expansive amount of compassion and empathy. Um, I don't know how much you want to talk about my mistakes, but I'm happy to tell you some of the things that got me in trouble. I, I, you know, I kind of glossed over in college. I had an incident where I, uh, I you know, you talk about violence. I was at a bar um, one evening with a buddy of mine. We were leaving. We'd only had one drink. And as we were leaving the property, there was a gate next to the car uh, where we were parked. And as I was getting in the passenger side, uh, out of the darkness came this guy and grabbed me and said, what the hell are you doing here? And put his hand on me. 
And growing up in Philadelphia, I learned quickly with after a few ass kickings that action is way quicker than reaction. So ended up hitting the guy and um, his buddy came out and I proceeded to beat these guys pretty bad. And um, Jason came around the other side of the car, my buddy that was with me and said, oh, my God, what the hell just happened? So we got to get out of here. So we jumped in the vehicle, left. My hands were a little bit bloody. And I said to Jason, I said, I feel really weird. I ended up hurting those guys pretty bad. And, and he said, well, where'd they come from? I said, I don't know. They just came out of the, the dark at the gate and asked me what I did there. And the guy grabbed my shoulder. And so fast forward a few months later, um, the, to keep the story short, uh, what had happened was the one guy was actually in the hospital and uh, was uh, in a coma at one point. So the uh detective came and visited me and Jason and said that I was up on attempted murder charges. And so I thought to myself, holy shit. Well, best, thank God I had my parents um, and the family that I did. And my parents came out. Um, <laughs> I ended up uh, getting a lawyer and uh, I was up against uh, uh, it was aggravated class three. It was, a, it was a felony in the state of Arizona, which was mandatory sentencing. And so the mandatory sentencing carried with it a, a seven-year um, ride to the, the penitentiary. And I told my parents that I hadn't done anything wrong. The guys grabbed me. The guy attacked me. And so we ended up hiring a private investigator and found out that these two guys actually had been um, prospects in a motorcycle gang. Uh, and they were protecting a uh, drug lab. Uh, both of them had warrants. The guy that was in the coma that eventually came out was um, on numerous drugs and alcohol. He had a blood alcohol level of like 0.248. So to tell you, this is all for the reason that because as we journeyed through my family, my parents never quit on me and believed in me and, you know, said, Hey, you know, this is nuts and we'll get you out of it. And tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees and hiring the private investigator. Uh, they eventually dismissed the case without prejudice saying that, um, you know, these guys were criminal dudes and obviously were thinking that I was coming into their drug lab or whatever the case may be, got it dropped. Uh, but at the time, I think one of the biggest wake up calls for me was that I realized as a young white European male that I had parents that cared about me. Had I not, I only wonder what would have happened. So, you know, you talk about empathy. That was probably the first major lesson for me in empathy to realize that, you know, the, the world's different and, and there's, you know, close to 8 billion people on this planet. There's 8 billion different experiences, 8 billion different lenses to which we see the world and how fortunate I was um, to understand that, um, through good family, good friends, I ended up not um, dealing with some of the consequences that would have happened had I not been, had I been a, a person that didn't have the economic means to get myself out of it. And uh, that was for me, the first step in, in realizing that I should be a, uh, a person that looks at things with a high level of empathy. Well, thank you for sharing that story, man. It's incredibly powerful. And what a, what a near miss that was to your entire military career as well. But talking to family, I mean, you are honestly one of the few people I think that had a 
really, really solid, good upbringing. A lot of people did have a little trauma, and that's what brought them into the military or first responder profession subconsciously, I think. But also, I wonder what the family unit looked to those two prospects. And I guarantee you there was probably trauma and broken homes there that sent them down that path. And then yeah. you look at prohibition of drugs and all the issues that that's caused. So ultimately, as you've touched on many, many times in this conversation, mentoring, creating community, not not you know driving divisions in communities and countries that we've seen, I think the last two administrations, to be honest, but realizing that, as you said, you know we can empower our immediate circle and that's what's most important you know tweets and you know democratic versus republican debates and all that stuff are not going to fucking change anything but if you yeah. can start in your own home and then extend out into your own community as i said before you would absolutely change the world and imagine those two prospects they could have been you know incredible people but they found themselves down the wrong path and i think that's the conversation that needs to be heard yeah you know i uh, i always joke Research gets thrown out the window when you look at Danny P because I grew up in an amazing family, amazing home. Uh, my parents just celebrated their 50th anniversary. Uh, we went over to Ireland, my sister, her family, and my parents, and we had this great you know, time to reminisce over what has been our life. Uh, I was given every opportunity in the world. I just like getting into trouble every once in a while. You know, Growing up in Philly, uh, if you turn right, uh, you can just get into about every nefarious activity under the sun. You turn left and you're out of trouble. So luckily, um, the people that, as you put, were my mentors and coaches got me to turn left uh, just enough times. I wouldn't say more than I needed, but just enough times to get me out of it, which goes back to why I'm saying that's telling that story is, you know, opportunity is invisible to a lot of people. And as I've gotten older, um, again, my, the, my ability to have this expansive amount of empathy and look at things from every angle. I love having my mind changed. I love when someone tells me something that I was so certain of uh, and they get you to look at a different perspective. That to me is not uh, anything other than wisdom, right? So there's a lot of smart people out there, lots of people that are well-read. Wise people want their mind changed. Wise people are willing to look at things from a different angle. Going back to Pat, that was why I talked about him earlier and who he was. He was never a guy that would, you know, not listen to everybody's story. Um, he was a guy that would look at every perspective and, and every different angle. So all those lessons rolled into one, right? At 46, I had Pat in my life. I had that experience with those prospects. I then got to the military and had these great men around me. I then went to the MBA and was surrounded with all these people from India, from China, in my international Bay program that taught me different stuff. And by the time I got there, I was so quick to lean in on these international students because I was like, what can I learn from them, right? So knowing that I brought a little bit to the table and they brought way more to me, um, it's an evolution, right? So I think as you just put it, we're watching the news. If you're watching the news, turn it off. Um, it, it, go out into your neighborhood, go out into your community, find a way to connect with people. Um, you know, there's so many things now that are bringing together different um, demographics and, 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 and polarizing sex together. Um, you know, that is also, like I said earlier, if you get people in a room and have a conversation, it usually erodes the differences that we have. Right. And if you look at it both morally and philosophically on who it is that we are as human beings, we're all the same. We're all the same. And, uh, it's just, uh, we want to go back to doing what we think is, uh, the normal everyday 
activities of raising our family, worshiping our own deity and making a good living so that our kids can prosper and have the kind of life that they, that we can give them. Absolutely. Well, speaking of incredible humans doing good in the world, let's talk about how you met Ryan Parrott and then your perspective through, you know, through your lens of the Human Performance Project and 7X. Birdie, birdie. I love the bird, man. So it's so funny. I, I just kind of captured all the things that have happened throughout my life and talked about multiple people, whether it was Liam Flaherty or Sean Moriarty or Pat Tillman. Um, it almost all came to one when you bring Birdman together. He is the nucleus of so much stuff. Um, so Ryan and I met back in 2011, 2012 timeframe at a Medal of Honor event in Dallas, Texas. There's a woman who helped run the event named Connie Boucher. And Connie had Ryan and some of his SEAL buddies there. I got invited and I started giving her a hard time saying, whoa, 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 we're about a little room for the the Green Berets and the Army side. So the following year, she had us out. I uh, bought a bunch of the guys from Fort Bragg. And it was just this, you know, uh, Red Sox and the Yankees, you know, Ryan and, and his SEALs versus Danny and his uh, Green Berets. And a lot of great conversations and, and, and camaraderie came out of it. So Ryan had Sons of the Flag, which uh, I know you guys have had him on, so I won't uh, go down the details, but it's a nonprofit that helps guys with guys and girls with uh, burn injuries. So Ryan was holding a talk in Dallas with retired General Tommy Franks, who was the commander during 9-11 uh, as the CENTCOM commander and actually told a great little story when he was there with Ryan. Um it was about how on 9-11, President Bush called him and said, Tommy, you know, what are you going to do? Um, but anyways, Ryan's at this event. He's interviewing uh, General Tommy Franks. He tells a story about the president calling him while he was on the CENTCOM bird. And uh, in the front of the uh, the little area that we were, had our tables was a bunch of firefighters. And as the thing, as the talk was over, they were the first ones to stand up and start clapping. And I went over and introduced myself and Ryan introduced me to the guys uh, at the table that were all dressed in their uh, FDMY gear. And one of them was Liam Flaherty. And so Liam and I started chatting and I told him that I too had a nonprofit that I was involved in back at Fort Bragg. Liam and his buddies were there because they uh, were helping with burn victims from the fire department, but also because they play the bagpipes. And so when I told him we had an event at Fort Bragg that Memorial Day, Liam uh, offered to come down and, and play the bagpipes for the fallen soldiers that we were going to be honoring that Memorial Day. And Liam came down and that was the genesis of what has become a great relationship. Um, like I said, you can have Liam on for days um, and tell stories. But uh, so now here I am, I've now met Liam and John Nolan and George Murphy, all these guys from FDNY through Bird. Fast forward, when I met Sean, like I told you, in around 2013, as the president of the Pat Tillman Foundation uh, and the CEO of Ticketmaster, we connected. And uh, as I told you before, he said, if you ever need a favor, let me know. So in the second year of my MBA, the requirement is that you go do an internship. So I called up Sean. I said, hey, I need to do an internship. And he said, cool, you'll be my chief of staff this summer. Uh, come to L.A. and we'll, we'll put you to work. So 
I then went in the summer of 2018. This is five years later after meeting Liam and those guys. And when I get out there, um, Sean was amazing. He let me in on every meeting possible. I was uh, witness to some huge deals and, and some stuff that most other interns were not getting. So we had a trip to go back to New York and Sean said, Hey, we're flying out on a red eye. We land at, you know, 10 in the morning. We got meetings all day and then we're done by six. So I asked him if he would have time to go meet my buddies, Liam and George and John Nolan from the FDNY that I had created this relationship through Birdman. Again, the nucleus of, of all this amazing stuff. And uh, uh, Sean says, of course, let's, let's do it. Let's set up dinner. I'd love to meet these guys. So Sean being the amazing man that he is uh, decides we're going to go to this big Italian dinner and take these guys out. So we go, we're having drinks. It's kind of the sniff test in the beginning of the dinner. We're sitting there, it's uh, John Nolan and Liam, Sean Moriarty and myself, the drinks are flowing. And I don't remember exactly how the story got started, but at one point Sean said, Hey, I want to make a toast and thank you guys because, um, on 9-11, the guy that's considered the first ever victim of 9-11 is Danny Lewin. And Danny Lewin was a friend of mine. And so if you don't know the story of Danny Lewin, I encourage you to Google him and look him up. But succinctly telling you, Danny was an American-born Israeli who went home, became Israeli special forces, left uh, Israel to come back to the United States, attended MIT, uh, became an absolute tech genius and I'm going to screw it up a little bit, but helped to figure out a way to speed up the internet and create more bandwidth and was a billionaire in his thirties. So Sean was at the time, the CEO of Ticketmaster on the morning of nine 11, Danny Lewin was leaving from Boston and flying out to see Sean and they were having lunch that day. So here I am at this table in New York with these guys from FDMY. I'm a special operations soldier because of Pat. Sean was the president of the Pat Tillman Foundation. We got introduced. Sean's an alumni from the University of South Carolina. All the FDMY guys sitting around the table. And Sean tells this story of Danny and how he was so close to him. And, and then the FDMY guys that day dealing with what they did. It was surreal. The hair on my skin stood up. I had goosebumps. And Sean had never told me this story. And I'm thinking to myself, how amazing is it that all this is being brought together? So where does Birdman come in? So fast forward to after I graduated the MBA, uh, I was now living in Dallas working at a private equity firm. And Bird and I reconnected. And he called me up and said, hey, Danny P., I, I got a favor to ask you. And I said, sure. And he said, you know, when I'm with you, he says, you just got great energy. I said, oh, thanks, Birdman. He said, no, seriously, whenever I'm in the room with you, he's like, you make me feel like I can do anything. So now I'm blushing that the Navy SEAL is telling the Green Beret that he's cool, which is pretty cool <laughs> itself. And uh, I'm like, oh, well, what do you need? So knowing Birdman has done multiple nonprofits and figuring that I would be involved in some sort of you know, one day event where we'd go and, and shoot with some donors or set something up where we had a dinner or a golf tournament. He said, well, I had a buddy, David Metcalf, that took his own life. And I believe that we need to do something to help um, kind of move the needle on suicide. And I have this theory that suicide is not simply a 
brain-related issue, but it's almost holistic, where it's the mind, the body, and soul. And he proceeds to tell me that he had gone to some doctors at Harvard and through this theory at him, and they came back and said, we're actually working on similar stuff. We you know, don't have a ton of research on it. Ryan said, well, what if I put together some guys and, and gave you a baseline for it? And that's where 7X came from. So Ryan, as he's telling me this, says, what I want you to do with me, this favor that I'm asking you is to fly to all seven continents in seven days. We're going to skydive in. We're going to run a marathon and we're going to swim on all seven continents. Now, he had just told me that he loved my energy and he felt like when he was with me, he could do anything. And I'm blushing. Well, I couldn't say no at this point. He had me teed up like a titleist. And I said, man, I'm in. Sounds great. And uh, that was where Ryan kind of got connected. So going back to all that genesis of, of those people and places, here I am at a moment at 46. Like I said earlier, the evolution of who I am and where I've been and what I've seen, the empathy, the mentoring, all the stuff that I've had a chance to go through. I feel like this is a, a very pivotal moment. It's the culmination of everything I've been able to see to realize that what Ryan has set forth for us to accomplish means so much. And it's going to be a global challenge. It's going to be an amazing challenge. And uh, I'm honored and flattered to be part of the 7X Human Performance Project. Well, I think what makes it so unique is I think a lot of people see 7X, so that one week that we're going to be doing. But there has been literally, what, a, a close to a year ramp up, eight month ramp up. Um, yeah. <clears throat> then we're going to have the pinnacle event that I'm going to watch you guys destroy yourselves from the comfort yeah. of a plane chair. And then, uh, then there's going to be the reboot phase. And I think that, you know, there, there's people that have done some pretty incredible things and, and it's definitely a shiny object. And by doing what you're doing, not only, um, getting the attention, but, you're also going to each of these countries that we're we're working with. So we're going to show yeah. the world this is a, a global issue, the mental health crisis. But then I think the really powerful takeaway is after we've done the reboot and we've learned, you know, what what set you up for success, what broke you down, what rebooted you, the docu-series and the manual of which the funds are then going to go not only back into Sons of the Flag, but also uh, non-profits from each of the continents to support their military and first responders. So when you look at the entire landscape of what this actually is, of course, 7X is the pinnacle, but you know it literally is going to positively affect not just our uniformed personnel in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah, I was with uh, George Schimmel, who's one of the guys <clears throat> that's on our team uh, just this past weekend, and George actually ran across the country. He left from San Diego, finished in New York and stopped everywhere in between. And he said, it's so funny because even that people really can't understand going back to the empathy or the compassion to put yourself in someone's shoes to run 3000 plus miles is insane. What we're doing, it's insane. And Ryan um, has brought together some of the most amazing people in the world. Uh, the team of nutritionists with Chelsea and the doctors, um, our logistics guys that are working tirelessly to ensure that all of our passports and, and customs will be taken care of. It is amazing. And so it goes back and speaks volumes about Ryan as a human being, which is why I told that long story of, you know, meeting Ryan, meeting Liam, meeting Sean. And now the situation where Ryan is picking from all the different fruits that are bare to ensure that this thing will be successful. Um, it, it is a human problem. You know, everyone that we talk to about this is so quick to say how they lost a brother, a 
sister, a high school buddy or a parent to somebody to, to, to suicide. And I, I think what Ryan's trying to accomplish, um, I don't want anybody to be confused. We don't think that we're going to solve for suicide by going to seven continents in seven days. Um, the baseline of which we're providing these doctors <clears throat> is the, you know, as you said, the eight months of optimization and, and human performance side, we, the four of us that are involved in this, and uh, it's me, Alex, uh, Leo, and, and, and Ryan, um, we're evenly split on de- dates, that which uh, it works out perfect. So Leo's 35, Ryan's 41, I'm 46, and Alex is 51. So there's four special operations soldiers in different phases of their life and career. Ryan's, I'm sorry, Leo is still active. Um, he's working on his MBA uh, and doing exactly what I did. And uh, sometimes he calls me and says, man, this is hard. And I said, I told you so accounting's not easy. Uh, Ryan at 41 is, uh, medically retired, has, uh, two beautiful children and a beautiful wife, um, has been running the nonprofits. Uh, myself, I transitioned out a couple of years ago and I still deal with stuff. I, I tell people all the time with all the things that I've been blessed with, the great mentors, the education, there's still days where I, I wonder if I, I got all the faculties to do everything I'm being asked of. But then you have uh, Alex, who's 51 and has been out for a couple of years. Same thing. Married kids, has a great job and, and loves what he's doing. But Ryan's plan is to take that uh, data that we have now collected and provide people that are doing the research to examine whether or not there is some validity to the idea that it is a holistic approach, which I think is extremely, extremely accurate to think that it's just the mind. Um, I, I think oftentimes because when people commit suicide, what do they do? They they shoot themselves in the high, in the head, right? So the, the brain is the master. And it's more about the idea that um, how we feed ourselves, how we sleep, so much goes into it. And so I, I'm excited that Ryan had this theory. I'm excited that there's people uh, at Harvard. Um, the doctor's name escapes me, uh, James, but I'm sure you'll fill us in. But um, the, the people from Harvard are interested in this. And not only that, but we got four willing participants that are going to go through the, the the physical endurance of what we're doing. Uh, like last night, I ran 12 miles. Um, you know, I got an 18 miler today. We got some great coaches and teammates, Chris Half who's uh, our coach has been working with some of the top endurance athletes in the world. Um, Shay, who, as you know, is one of our teams and George, I mentioned um, it, it's just, it's so flattering and, and humbling to be part of this. Uh, you know, like I said, I, I feel like all the stuff that I told you in the first 45 minutes, the hour of this podcast said, Hey, you're exactly where you need to be at this moment in time. The universe got you here. And there's a reason. And the reason is what Ryan is uh, asking us to help move the needle on and, and, and give these people the data and provide some research to show if uh, his theory is correct. Absolutely. Well, I'm actually going home in two weeks. We'll say home back to the UK. Um, I haven't announced what you know about who might be present at the UK leg. Um, so I'm yeah. still waiting until that's actually been nailed down. But um you know, I, I'm looking forward to talking to, you know, the fire department, the police department, through dark, reorg, I mean, all these great organizations that we've got. But if you think about Dubai and Australia and Cairo and, and here in Florida, 
the the message that we can send to the world that it's not as you said a military problem or or a first responder problem it's a human problem and it's not an american problem it's a global problem and there are probably some tribes that i, mean, I think i heard someone say once that there's certain you know older tribes that don't even have a definition for suicide because it doesn't happen right. probably because their community is is you know strong and their connection to nature and some of these other areas but for most of us you know that we label developed um, I think that we've regressed, you know, it, it, as you said, as human beings in some areas and our perceived stresses have taken away from it. And you look right. at, you know, some of the, the obesity epidemic that we've got, the pharmaceuticals, the disconnection with our food, the sleep deprivation. I mean, there are so many layers and that is, you know, only going to be solved with a holistic approach at the entire human experience before we can unpack all these different contributing elements and actually therefore give people the tools to understand their own physical and mental journey and therefore unpack it themselves. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We're not all hardwired. I think sometimes we believe that we are. Uh, we have a choice to think the way we want and act the way we want. And with what you're talking about, we're giving people a choice. Um, and I encourage everyone that's listening, anyone that has the opportunity to make that change, to change themselves. Um, it starts with you, right? I mean, there's that idea that the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Take the first step, you know, get yourself healthy and then look in the community. Uh, I, I think without a doubt that this project, as you put it, covering the globe is going to bring together a lot of people. It's going to show everyone that what Ryan ha has theorized is hopefully true and we can then start to come up with a solution. I go back to what I said earlier again, I'm not upset or depressed about what's going on. I'm optimistically encouraged to think we have an opportunity in front of us. That's the opportunity to figure out if we're right. And if we're not right, let's shift the fire and, and figure out what really is the, the root cause of the depression, the anxiety, but then let's fix it. So I think Ryan um, probably didn't realize, I, I told him recently that when he came to me and asked me to be part of this, uh, yes, I was blushing and super flattered that an Navy SEAL had come to me. I was in a tough spot, um, a very, very tough spot. And I was going through my own um, little moments of, you know, back to the imposter syndrome. Do I belong here? What's going on? What's my purpose in life? And then Ryan threw me this life preserver and said, hey, uh, I need you to be part of this. And I think that to me is indicative of why it's so much uh, more important to help others. And then helping others, you help yourself. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it was Colin O'Brady that uh, Chris Houth is friends with was on the Ryan Halliday show. And he said, uh, uh, depression is a lack of imagination. And so I, I think that's a really good way to look at it, right? So if you're depressed, you just lack the imagination to understand that you can make change. But at the same time, depression is, is heavy and anxiety is heavy. Uh, and if you're going through it, uh, I, like Ryan, would say, you know, reach out to me, call me or call anybody in your circle, um, because there's a lot of people out there that are going through the same stuff. That's one of the things with the special operations community. When you ask the guy to your left or right or woman to your left and right, um, if they're going through the, you know, do you have sleep problems? Do you got anger problems? Are you got, are you short tempered? And, you know, and they go, yeah. And you go, oh, okay, okay. Well, then I guess it's normal. But then you talk to other people and the stuff that we deal with isn't always normal. So finding the right audience and, and finding someone to listen to you, um, there's so much courage in being vulnerable 
And uh, I, I think for us as a community, that's all of a sudden no longer become taboo, right? So uh, all the stuff that I mentioned with the journaling, the yoga, the meditation, um, that's that's in now, man. Like, go do it and, and figure out how to present yourself uh, to other people so they can see the true you and help you be the best version of you. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to one more area before we go to some closing questions, if you, if you still have time. Um, I know one of your recent um, kind of hats that you wore was working with the indigenous population. Now, I've actually tried to get several people from, you know, Native American or, or Canadian tribes on. Um, but I don't know <laughs> if there's a barrier to entry, maybe because of the issues that we had and the, the lack of trust. But talk to me about your experience, because it's it's a group, you know, for example, when you talk about, you know, racism in, in America, you don't think of Native American tribes. But when I speak to responders at work and reservations, right, they tell me of the addiction of the poverty, a lot of these these struggles that some of these communities are up against. So what is your perception of, I guess, I guess the state of Native tribes in this country or in Canada through your eyes? Well, uh, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but uh, I'll opine a little bit about just, you know, indigenous populations a- across the globe, too. Um, when uh, I started working for the firm that you mentioned, it was because a gentleman by the name of David um, Seaton said, hey, there's a private equity firm. They're working exclusively with indigenous populations in the U.S. and Canada, and they need someone to help them relate to the communities and they can go out there and, and engage with them. Uh, when you talk about the racism that exists, I've been to some of the reservations, just a small few. Um, my time there was short, but uh, when you go onto these reservations and the abject poverty that's in the borders of the United States is profound. And you got to understand that these people have been um, lied to and, and, and told for dec- decades, a century. Uh, that we were going to help them out. And it goes back to the idea that, um, you know, we're, we're really good at uh, short-term memory here in the U.S. So we forget how poorly we treated the Native Americans in the U.S. So the racism that I guess you would say exists uh, probably is two-sided. They're very apprehensive to now look at um, U.S. Uh, as an ally, right? A lot of the people from these populations have had atrocities over and over and over that have been at the hands of, you know, the white European male, uh, which I am part of. Um, But there's also part of me that got to remind us that the past is the past and and moving forward is all we can do. Um, There's a lot of great guys and girls that I've met in those communities that that's what they want to do is, you know, take their generation of Native Americans and springboard them into the opportunities that are here in 2022. Um, some of these reservations don't even have internet. It's crazy. You would think that, you know, in 2022, internet's readily available throughout the entire country. Uh, I've been to places in Arizona where you can't even get a cell phone signal and you're 10 miles from the I-10 running between California and Arizona. So these populations um, that you talked about are similar to indigenous populations all around the world. Um, but my point on that to sum it up would be it's irrelevant what we've done in the past uh, to look at the things, the atrocities that are there certainly help us navigate and move forward. Um, that to me is what's pivotal now for all the communities. And in the military, 
um, you know, I, I laugh. It's the greatest social experiment of all times. You know, you have Native Americans, you have um, people of Asian descent, you have African Americans, you have Hispanics, you have white European male, Irish guys. Um, and when we're there, uh, there is no uh, racism in my world that I've seen. Uh, yes, it exists. And I know that in the military, there's plenty of racism. But um, when you're all brought together for a common cause, um, it, it truly makes us human and not identify with where we came from. So I, I think that's a big part of what we take for granted is that here in the U.S., we've brought, brought together so many people. Uh, I just want to see us move together collectively um, and, and and be successful, which is very much uh, we've we've leveled we've leveled technology and, and offered it in ways. I, and I say that for me, the hope is that technology and capitalism um, and innovation will will make some huge strides and changes over the next twenty years for those populations of indigenous people here in the in the U.S. and throughout the globe. Yeah, well, I think it sort of circles round back to our initial conversation with World War II, and I've been baffled by what I'm about to say, but I wonder if it actually factors into our veterans coming home and kind of regressing into themselves. Because if you look at 1945, all these men and women of all backgrounds fighting for the greater good, you had Nav Navajo wind talkers and you had the Buffalo soldiers. I mean, you know, all these different, the Muskegee right. airmen. Um, you know, you look at those, <laughs> there's a meme I shared a while ago and it was a bunch of, um, uh, Sikh, um, from India, I believe. Uh, Spitfire pilots in British uniforms, and it's I think the the sarcastic comments are something like bloody, bloody Indians coming over here and flying our Spitfires and winning the war. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but um, but you know that's the point. So you had that, and you had the women of a lot of these countries stepping into what were traditionally male roles. You know, Rosie the River, um, and then you get to the 1950s where. People are hanging black people from trees and women belong in the kitchen. And it makes me like, how did we lose those beautiful lessons of World War II and seemingly regress into a world of prejudice? And this wasn't everyone, of course, but I wonder if the the exhaustion mentally and physically of a lot of our veterans that were out there actually seeing that gave in to some of the... the um, the less ethical personalities in this country that maybe never even served in the first place. And so I, I think that we owe it to that World War II generation to, as you say, say, all right, you know, this was happening in the 50s and 60s and 70s, but it's up to us now in 2022, you know, rather than focusing on pronouns and some of these things that, you know, I, I understand what's behind it, but again, it's, sure. it's not really actionable that we actually go, okay, let's learn the mistakes from our forefathers and foremothers and right some of the wrongs that are still lingering today, whether, as you said, it was poverty and addiction on reservations or whether it's, you know, the, the reverse, the obesity epidemic, that are, you know, a lot of our population are overfed and malnourished. I mean, these are things that we have to light the torch, figure out what you're most passionate about and become part of the movement. Yeah. Well, I, I mean... You said a lot of stuff there to which I'll, I'll talk to one thing, and that's that, you know, coming together goes back to it, right? Like, how do we come together and, and solve these problems? I said earlier to exact change, get out in your local community. So finding something that matters to you, and it doesn't have to be veteran suicide. It doesn't have to be the veteran population. It could be anything, whether it's obesity, it could be um, children's education, it could be anything across the spectrum that you find a passion for. If you want to be somebody that is part of the 
uh, solution and not the problem. Don't go to your keyboard and strike your opinion and try and get someone else fired up. Uh, get off your, your bench and <clears throat> join the game and get out there in the community and, and do something that is a positive impact. I said it earlier that if you'll first agree with me that we're all here to improve the lives of those less fortunate, the manner in which we achieve that, I'll debate with you all day. That's how I would sum it up. You got to figure out what it is you want to be uh, remembered for and how you want to achieve that is something that uh, it's on you. And so uh, I think right now the internet has a propensity for sometimes <clears throat> being polarizing, but it can also bring people together. So use the internet, use social media in a way that can get actions and, and people to create change in their own community and uh, be part of a, a local uh, sports team. I actually had to do some community service one time for uh, um, uh, a place in Phoenix where a buddy and I, we coached the football team there. And that to me was at 18, one of the best experiences uh, I ever had, which is actually where I met that guy, John Parmelli, who was the coach, um, you know, being involved with kids and, and giving back. It's a huge part of it. So for me, um, exacting change is, is just getting off the bench. Beautiful. All right. Well, I would love to go to some closing questions quickly before I let you go. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, the book that I often gave out to a lot of my students when I was there was The Alchemist. Uh, I read that. And it's pretty much the hero's journey. And it talks about how uh, we all got to go through our own crucible. Uh, if you haven't read it, <clears throat> read it. Uh, if you've read it, then gift it. I, I think it does a great uh, job kind of telling all of us that we are our own hero and uh, we can save ourselves. So The Alchemist is, is one of my top three books. Brilliant. What about a film and or a documentary? Greatest film of all time, hands down, Braveheart. That's uh, uh, kind of the quintessential uh, movie for guys of my generation. But I also say that because <laughs> I've gotten to know the, the screenwriter, Randall Wallace. And uh, Randy has been a huge advocate for the military. He's an amazing guy. But uh, I, I think there's a lot about that movie that goes to – it's like the, 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 the cinematography version of – of the alchemist, right? The hero's journey and uh, sent off to save uh, the community. There's Mel Gibson, AKA uh, Randall Wallace. And uh, I would, uh, if, you have, if you're a young kid listening to this and you somehow haven't watched it, you know, put it on tonight. <clears throat> Braveheart is, it's amazing. It's amazing. Now, how did he feel about an Australian being cast for that role? Oh, man, I got a great story for you. All right. So <laughs> you remember Longshanks? Yes. Longshanks is the king, and he's an absolute bastard. So I remember when I got to know Randy, the screenwriter, you know, it was amazing. I, I, I've held the, the sword. I, 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 you know, asked him all these, like, cool stories, and he's quick to offer up uh, a lot of uh, interesting insights on how the movie developed. And I said to him, I said, I got to ask you, I said, how did you find Longshanks? And he said, oh, it was great. He said he went to Mel Gibson and they were talking about filling the role for Longshanks, who was supposed to be this evil bastard. And so he said, well, Mel, who do you think we could find for the role of Longshanks? 
Mel Gibson says to Randy, he goes, I got it. I got it. He says, what do you mean you got it? I, I, who are we going to do? And he goes, I got a guy. And I forget the gentleman's name, but he said, well, how do you know he's perfect for the role? And he said, this guy, he's the kind of guy that would fuck your wife and then shit in your bed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Randy goes, oh, he's the perfect guy. <laughs> so, of course, they put this guy. And if you ever watch the movie or when you watch it, you'll see Longshanks is the perfect, perfect villain. He's a complete bastard. And uh, it was uh, the best story that Randy had told me when he said he had this guy and uh, he would do that to you and, and know that it was truly uh, an evil man. And he said he came on set and was that guy. Like it wasn't him playing a role. He was just a rotten son of a bitch. Method acting 101. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Well, then next question. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, I've already mentioned him. I'll say it again. Hopefully he has the willingness to do it. But Liam Flaherty, uh, Liam is a man that uh, I say has a level of humility that is unparalleled. Uh, he had similar traits to every thing that Pat had. He was a guy that made you, makes you feel like you're the most important person in the room. If you open up the dictionary and looked up Irish firefighter in FDNY, it, there should be a picture of Liam. He's six foot five, um, extremely humble and has a heart as, as big as the, 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 the moon. He's just amazing. So if he's willing to come on, um, you know, I'd even come back on. I said, you know, your, your ideal podcast, get Birdman, Liam, see if we get Sean Mo on. I'd come back on, just tell some stories. It'd be really cool to hear all that stuff that I talked about. And then Birdman, the glue that binds and what we're working on, uh, that, that would be a story. But yeah, Liam is truly, truly somebody that um, probably wouldn't want to tell all of his uh, stories. You'd have to get him out of them, but he's, he's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Brilliant. Yeah, he's supposed to be coming on and then I want to do a second interview with all of you guys together yeah. know, down the road as well. So we'll make that happen. Perfect. All right. Well, then the last question before I make sure everyone knows where to find you. What do you do to decompress? To decompress? Um, I love yoga. Uh, I've found a way to do meditative running, which if you haven't tried it, you can take your headphones and pop them in and put on binaural beats. And so the idea of being out there, it's called AT attentional training. So if you go for a trail run and you have meditative music on while you're going out, call it a mile, call it 20 miles, whatever the distance you think you'd accomplish on a trail, the brain in attentional training modes starts to look at things. So here you are, uh, it's pretty amazing calculating where you're going to step on rocks and roots and up and down elevations. And so when you have the binaural beats on and you're doing the attentional training, it literally detaches you from yourself. Uh, I've gotten into it probably um, in the past month and a half. Um, you can even do it on a treadmill if you just want to start listening to binaural beats and running. But the kind of pinnacle of that is when you do it when you're on a trail. And it's amazing to see how the human mind and, and the physiology all work together. If you're running down a trail, you got to think about the idea that where you're looking is not where you're stepping at that exact time. So that minute kind of calculation of where you're going to step all happening at once. It's, it's what they call attentional training. And I have uh, fallen in love with it. Uh, I was always a runner, but recently um, it's been my new 
uh, favorite thing to do and decompress. Brilliant. I've never even heard of that before, so I'm going to have to look that up. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Well, I know that you're very new to social media, as is understandable when you're in special operations. Um, so the the AmericanExtreme.com, I think, is the website for 7X. At 7X is the Instagram page. What about you? Where are the best places to find you online? Man, I got like one post on Instagram, <laughs> and I got to get better about it. I'm going to pull up my uh, my story and see if I could – I don't even know who, how do you pull it up here – but um, it's uh, it's interesting because I just connected with a, a, a wonderful couple, uh, Eva Marie, who was a former WWE wrestler, and her husband Jonathan Coyle. Uh, she's got about five and five point five million followers on Instagram, and she's going to be helping us out with the Seven X project. And uh, she gave me a hard time and said, "You need to up." Her and Jonathan said, "You need to up your social media game." So I posted a. A uh, little video of me running out in Northern California a couple of weeks ago and got a bunch of likes, which is like 85 likes, which is a lot for me considering I have like 10 followers. But um, the power of social media going back to how we can use it for the positive aspects of it is what I would say is the best thing to do. So I'm. So looking at looking at this here, you're Danny Pritchard five. So at Danny Pritchard five P R I T C H A R D. Brilliant, and you can see both of his posts if you look now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have more. So I just had a conversation with our social media guy. I said I'm going to start doing more of those posts there where I'm running. I got a pretty uh, cool calendar where I get to travel a lot for work, and uh, I think that'll be one of the things I'll do is have little quick 15 minute conversations as I'm running and uh talk to people about what we got going on in american extreme and uh ryan parrot's uh, ability to bring us all together brilliant well danny i just want to say thank you so much uh, i believe as you told me before this was your very first podcast so thank you for allowing me to take your virginity um yeah and, but it's been an incredible conversation and the thing is i preface this a lot with with people that are you know swat firefighters you know special operations um military members especially in the male role, it really does help to smash that facade of masculinity, as we touched about, the you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Rambo kind of version that so many men bought into. When we hear some of the most accomplished, you know, tactical professionals talking about vulnerability and self, you know, forgiveness and yoga and meditation. So it's been such an incredibly powerful conversation. I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, thank you. And and just to cap on that, yeah, there is a, a lot about what we've put as stigmatisms that just need to be thrown out the window. Uh, you know, I, I was sitting there in the audience uh, on Monday as uh, you know Jamie was talking, and uh, you know we come from a world where you're not supposed to cry. I cried, cry guys. You know what I mean? Get a little tears out there. It's it's okay to be you. And uh, I teared up as Jamie was telling her story, and you're looking around. Um, just be you, man. Be you guys, be you girls, and and uh, have a good one. James, thank you so much for letting me on. Hopefully you get more than uh, the amount of posts I have listed for people to listen to this uh, podcast. <laughs>